everybody, Jeff Kasuf here, host of Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer, part of the Blue Wire Network. Excited to bring you another episode of Kicking Back here, and I'm joined by Haley Carter. If you're following the women's game, you're following soccer in general, you probably know Haley. She played for the Houston Dash. She served in the Marines for almost eight years. She is involved in a lot of different initiatives now in her post-playing career, including the executive board of the Girls Academy and the women's group within United Soccer Coaches, which is a huge coaching association within the U.S., which has that. When you hear about the annual convention, that's United Soccer Coaches, and she is a lawyer and uh, pools all of this expertise together in some unique ways and, and gives her a unique perspective on the moment right now in women's soccer, which we talked about on this pod and certainly in many spaces in the context of the National Women's Soccer League and everything that is happening there with some of the systemic change. But where Haley brings a unique perspective as well is not just to that world, which is very important and and sort of at the top of the pyramid that we see, but also to the world of youth soccer and organized soccer at different levels across the country where some of the problems that we talk about with abuse in coaching, uh, power dynamics and, and the issues within those that exists throughout soccer and that's a conversation that we have here so um, some different things we talk about in this podcast um, specifically that have happened recently that we don't kind of rehash so much but if you're listening you've probably know about them if not head to equalizersoccer.com this podcast will have some links in it that link out to some of the events that we discussed that happened recently some of which uh, I should say can be triggering um, and want to say that up front for anybody listening and also um, a, a very mild bit of um, explicit language in this one that we've we've marked on your podcast platform uh, very mild but want to point that out up front as well so um, we do explore much more than this in depth and and on a daily basis on equalizersoccer.com one of those links that, that I'll put in the post is uh, Pardeep Katri, one of our writers who recently reported on the National Women's Soccer League's diversity hiring policy, which is basically the NWSL's answer to a Rooney rule. It has long been a bit of a mystery. It is even having obtained it as an outlet to view and confirm its existence. It is still pretty vague, and uh, the league seems to sort of admit that in this moment finally, and uh, appears to be working on some potential changes to that. So uh, further reading for you that relates to this podcast, but uh, we'll get right into it here with Haley Carter, who uh, has brings a wealth of knowledge on, on a variety of subjects. So I uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. Please go ahead, rate and review this pod. Helps us get the word out and subscribe so you don't miss anything. We've got some more pods planned coming up soon as always bringing you closer to players coaches personalities all sorts of figures within the world of women's soccer Haley carter thanks for joining me on the kicking back podcast really appreciate you coming on here to uh to talk all things soccer and and i think um on and off the field and and hopefully uh uh insightful conversation for listeners ahead so appreciate you coming on yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Always uh, a pleasure. Yeah, happy to. Um, Haley, for, for those of you listening, uh, current chair of the women's group within United Soccer Coaches, which is um, a, a massive coaching group, uh, 
within the, the U.S., um, former goalkeeper for the Houston Dash, Naval Academy grad where she also played uh, close to eight years in the Marines, uh, is now a lawyer and also an executive board member of the Girls Academy, the GA, which is a, a high-level uh, youth soccer organization. So um, you, you've kind of seen it at, at different levels. You're seeing it now at different levels. Um, so I think that's important for folks listening to know kind of um, you know, you've, you've seen a lot of the game and, and have insight into, to all different aspects of the game. And, um, you know, wanted to, to talk about that because I think, you know, a lot of people listening right now are maybe NWSL fans, or they've seen the NWSL news, which, um, you know, this is something we've talked about in this space on this pod, even so often. Um, but, but these, these topics are, are something that, extend to all corners of the game. And, and that's, that's youth soccer. That's globally. Um, you've worked with the Afghanistan women's national team and in, in multiple ways, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, but, but I wanted to talk about maybe just getting started. Like we, I think anybody listening to this kind of knows what's happened in the past month, six weeks, and, and maybe looking forward a little bit um, at, at what, what change maybe looks like, because that's part of what the conversation that players have been wanting to have in, in the this pro level. I think imagine that it goes down to, the, to other levels. But um, I guess I'm wondering, Haley, what what you know, maybe just to start the all of the news that's happened. It's, it's hard to make that a singular. Um, but but recently um, what your kind of initial reaction was, I imagine, unfortunately, in, in some degree or some ways, not one of surprise, but but. Um, yeah, I mean, what was that to, to start, what that was like for you in, in terms of what this past month or two has been like, or a few months, really? Yeah, I think uh, certainly not surprising, shock, mm-hmm. not shocking by any means. Um, it, it's It's been sort of an interesting journey, I would say, for players that started with the league in 2013 or 2014, and then to see where we've come. Um, and we've come so far in so many ways but we still have so far to go in other facets and um you know one area that i think we still need to work on and we'll continue to work on and i think the existence of the nwsl players association is going to really hopefully make a a massive change and and really are going to drive some influence in the space is the power dynamic that exists within the league itself inherently sets players up uh, in a very vulnerable position. And, and that's been, that's been the, the case since the very beginning. Um, I think the, the um, extensiveness maybe of the vulnerability has been slightly reduced since the beginning, but the reality is the power dynamic still exists. And the league, to be fair, was built, you know, with the intent to be financially stable. Uh, but as a result of that, you've placed players in a precarious position where um, in order to maintain a f- some semblance of financial stability and, and sustainability, players and players' rights uh, and benefits and salaries and whatnot are, you know, inherently impacted or limited. So I think that not surprising to me, obviously what happened, cause I've, I've been in that environment. I know what the locker rooms are like. I know, um, how, uh, difficult it can be to call things out. 
um, that are inappropriate or that don't feel comfortable or um, that you just don't agree with, you know, you're, you're placed in a position of, um, you know, you're, you're terrified to say something because you're afraid that your contract might get canceled. Uh, you may get waived. And so there's, it's, there's two things that have happened is one, there's the dynamics of the league have very much created a haves and have nots, right? You have your superstar players, every team has a handful of them. And, and those players really, I think are, are, are untouchable from a contractual standpoint. I mean, the front office and GMs and sporting directors and head coaches would be insane to waive those athletes. Um, but then you have the, the newer players who are, you know, rookies that are coming in or are players that have played overseas who've come back that are really on the cusp of making, you know, a, a 20 or 23 player roster. Like they're really right there. Um, you know, any, any day it could go either way. And, and, um, the trend that we see, and of course, it's not just Paul Riley. It's not, um, you know, it's not any of these coaches that have got pulled into this. It's not Richie Burke. It's not, there are even, even the best of coaches, I think have a tendency to treat certain athletes differently than the way that they treat others. And, um, and the unfortunate thing is, is that the, those players, um, prior to the establishment of the NWSL Players Association really didn't have a voice, really didn't have a means to, um, to express things that were happening to them in a safe place where, you know, they could, they could be believed, they could be trusted, they could be empowered um, to sort of speak their truths. And so it's, you know, over the last several years, we've seen that develop. But again, the power dynamic there still exists. We have players who you know, the fact that a team or club can hold on to your rights indefinitely is like, that would never happen in the real world. You know, if I want to leave an employer to go to another employer, like, sure, I might have to deal with some sort of non-compete agreement under certain terms that are entirely reasonable. But, you know, the fact <laughs> to say that I couldn't leave an employer to go to another employer because my first employer is just going to hold on to my rights indefinitely is, is, that to me um, is pretty symbolic of the predicament that athletes are put in that, you know, <laughs> you, even if you're in an environment that you don't want to be in, you don't feel comfortable being there, but that team wants you to be there and they don't want you to be anywhere else. They're just, they can just hold on to you. That, that kind of power imbalance is a problem. Um, and it was the same in MLS as well in the beginning. So it's, you know, this is not unique to, to NWSL. Um, it, for me, it's the best part of the last couple of weeks and months has been the, um, the unity, I think, across players and across teams. I do think that there is still a way to go in that aspect. I think there are still locker rooms who could be much more unified than they might appear to be. Um, you know, I think that the in pro sports and, you know, not just the NWSL, but in pro sports, you have a bunch of type A personalities who inherently are very much looking out for, for their career and their interests. And I don't think anybody can blame them for that, but that's also diametrically opposed to, you know, standing up for, for others. And I was always really fortunate because I, I played early on in the league when you know, this amateurs, you know, national team replacement players weren't getting paid. 
um, you were being called up for that specific game that you were going to be available for, um, but you were playing for free. And and I always used to joke about, um, you know, like, I, I don't know, as a Marine, like I, my integrity and standing for the things which I believe are right is just, that is ingrained in me. Like, that's how I operate. Um, but I also always had the freedom to speak my mind, to disagree with things or to point out things that I wasn't comfortable with, that I didn't like, that I didn't think were relevant. Um, or where I thought there was improvements to be made and how certain team dynamics were being handled, because what were they going to do? They were going to, were they going to fire me? (laughs) Like, you know, like I I had a full-time job and a mortgage and a car payment and a child that I was raising. Like I, so, you know, for me, um, I sort of took it on as, as my responsibility as somebody who had a full-time job and, an ability to support myself and to support some of my teammates. You know, I hosted over three seasons. I think I hosted almost nine different athletes in my house um, that I felt like that was my responsibility as somebody who was in a more fortunate position to, to really support other athletes and to support my teammates and, and, you know, take a stand against things that I didn't think were right. Um, And so, you know, I, sometimes I, I find myself incredibly disappointed. You know, the perfect example is Nadine Onger's note. Um, And seeing the athletes when she made that statement that went and supported her on, uh, on Instagram, you know, some of those athletes are some of my closest friends and, and I'll be honest with you, I was incredibly disappointed with that response because when you're somebody who, you know, um, is one of the greatest goalkeepers in the history of the game, one of balloon to or like, shocker you know you didn't experience abuse but to make the statement that well I didn't experience abuse and I was treated well and that inherently discredits victims of abuse um and you know when you have that kind of influence and you have that kind of power use it the right way and to have that perspective was just yeah, I was incredibly disappointed and I'm not afraid to say that out loud. And I've said that to a few friends of mine that have, that commented positively on that note. Like, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that stance. I'm not ever going to be okay with that stance. Um, and you know, we can just agree to disagree, but I think that, um, I think that we deserve better. And my point, my point is that if Nadine Onger can come out with a statement like that and then be supported by multiple other athletes either current NWSL players or former NWSL players, that to me says that as a group of players and former players, we have a very long way to go in really, truly supporting one another. Um, I think that there have been some positive things, obviously. We've seen players, like I said, the unity has has increased, but I still think that um, we have a really long way to go in how women of color are treated, how trans athletes are treated within our league. Um, and yeah, so I, I just, I think there's, it's a multifaceted issue and, um, I'll be curious to see what the next, you know, what this off season brings and what happens with, you know, the efforts of the NWSL players association and the league, um, you know, as we sort of end playoffs and prepare for the expansion draft, college draft, et cetera, et cetera. That, that power structure you mentioned has been, as you said, in, in play for a while. It's not necessarily unique to the NWSL. It has its own unique 
a structure, I guess, in some ways. But uh, as you mentioned, MLS uh, has dealt with this in, in years past or decades past. Every every pro sports league has some degree of, of power structure and ownership, uh, ownership player dynamics. And um, I think it has felt, um, I guess it's in some ways you would expect it to feel different in this moment because of the the weight of it and the severity of, of what's happened. Um, but I think maybe the the thing that I wonder and, and wanted to talk to you about too and is kind of that path forward and and whether this is is different in any way. I mean, you mentioned within just talking now that you know you played in this league prior to the PA existing. And I think the PA not only existing, which it has in in a capacity as a thing for a few years, but now in the past year, not even quite a year at this point, being formally recognized and and before all this in a CBA negotiation and and actually sort of making um, making some tangible progress on that front felt like there was perhaps something a little bit different in this moment and you know the reaction and and the I think the shift in the power just just things that even have happened with you know the moving the championship game moving when, um, you know, that was clearly expressed. Everybody knew where everybody stood on that when it was announced and when it was being announced. And we saw after it was announced too, where some ownership stood on that with reaction to the complaints. And then all of a sudden after, you know, the, I guess post September 30th is kind of how, you know, I've been referring to some things is, you know, that Mm -hmm. suddenly changes. And I wonder if that's a sign of, of an actual shift in, in dynamic, uh, of power dynamic, or maybe it's too early to tell. Uh, I'm wondering what what do you think about kind of the is it that off season that, that we need to see how this goes as as a answer to that? I think so. I I think um, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I um, I think that post September 30th is all about accountability, and and now ownership front office, technical staffs are understanding that there will be accountability. And I think prior to that, you know, that there was none, you know, I think prior to that, um, the decisions that owners would come together and make were, um, you know, financially driven decisions, which are not necessarily a bad thing, but you, you weren't necessarily involving internal stakeholders such as players, right? And without the players, we don't have a game. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting. And and I sort of float on both sides of, of this fence because as a former player, I obviously care about the player um, part of this and how players are treated and um, how they're involved in the conversations, the fact that they haven't really been involved in the conversations in the past. Um, but then on the coaching side of it as well, you know, you, you've seen my tweets and we've talked about this before at the convention that, um, you know, getting more women involved in the game, getting more women coaches involved. And, um, and, and I'm not saying that we should hire women for the sake of hiring women. I'm actually saying quite the opposite. Um, because I think that, and you've heard me say this before too, women can be just as abusive as men. Um, so so women are not necessarily always the answer, but I think that we've seen, especially in recent times, you know, people have joked about the revolving, it's like musical chairs of NWSL coaches. You get in with one club and then all of a sudden you're able to get hired at another club later on. And, and like 
<laughs> are we really looking at the full pool of coaches that are available? And for me, accountability has to involve, um, you know, organizations really have to look at all of their processes and all of their policies. This isn't just about abuse. This isn't just about how players are being treated. This is everything within how a club functions from the top to the bottom. Um, you know, what are they doing to empower women? Are they making a true effort to go and find the best coaches? And that I think is not happening. Um, so even if you're not hiring women coaches, can you go out and hire somebody who's qualified for the job? Richie Burke was never qualified to coach the Washington spirit. He was never qualified. To, I don't care that he has a pro license. He's never coached women athletes at a high level. He had plenty of issues coaching youth athletes in Virginia. It was well known. He was an abusive jerk. And because he coached Steve Baldwin's daughter in high school, then somehow he's qualified to coach the Washington spirit. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Um, you know, and even some of the, even some of the, the, better staff, you could say that, that we have, um, in the league where are coaching in the youth game and then they get found and then are all of a sudden coaching pro women. Um, and that's been that way since the beginning. Um, and I think that, you know, you have to look at your hiring process. You, you, for me, we are not doing the kind of diligence, um, that we need to be doing. So whether it's, uh, at the GM level, whether it's at the head coach level, um, we're, it just doesn't exist. Um, and if you're taking a, a due diligence and tossing it out the window, like Washington did, for instance, well, then, you know, I, I don't know what to say about that. But that's not how you run a professional organization if you want it to be effective. Um, you know, you don't, you don't just hire your buddies and hope that it's going to work out. If you take an endeavor truly seriously, you want to hire the best people. Um, and the best people aren't always giving your buddy the hookup. Um, mm. And so for me, it, what I'd really like to see in this offseason is owners and club leadership really go through all of their policies and procedures and think about what they can do to make the environment a more professional environment. Because like we've talked about in the corporate world, you wouldn't get away with half the shit that these clubs are getting away with. You just wouldn't. Um, and if you did get away with it, your company financially is probably not doing very well because you're making decisions based on emotions and what you think feels good versus, you know, what's really potentially going to drive revenue. And, and right now for me, and this is not just for women athletes, but for athletes in general, I truly believe that humans will perform amazing feats and will buy in to anything if you make them feel valued. So this isn't just about salaries. This isn't, it's so much bigger than that. It's, you know, if somebody comes to you because they feel uncomfortable or they've been abused, do you believe them? Do you value them as a human? Do you take what they're saying seriously? And how do you, you know, how do you approach that? And for me, I'd really like to see, like I said, I'd like to see clubs really and go through and just from an organizational standpoint, you know, this isn't even for me, this isn't even about sports. Okay. This isn't, this isn't, you know, one of those things where 
we, you know, need to approach this problem because we're dealing with athletes. Um, these are businesses and we need to approach them, um, from an organizational standpoint and think about how are we treating our employees, whether they're interns, front office staff or players, these are, these are people. And in a, in an industry where your revenue is generated by the performance of your talent and your people, that, that has to come first. Um, and I think historically in the past, we've treated players and coaches and interns in front of, we've treated them like commodities and not like people. Uh, and I think that's come through. I think that that, that is the most apparent message that's come out of all of this is that players have not been treated like people. They've been treated like commodities and it's very much like, what have you done for me lately environment within a club? And I understand that we're in the business of entertainment. We're in the business of putting the best products on the field, but you're never going to get that if you're treating your players, your athletes, your coaches, or the position, the process of bringing those people in like a commodity and not, you're not doing it seriously. You're not valuing them as people. They're not, you're not valuing what they bring to the table on and off the pitch. So that's where I think the change has to happen. It's, you know, we can't look at it. Yeah. We can't look at it in this small little bubble of, you know, this myopic approach on abuse because it's much, much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, um, I think it's been a trend at the pro level here with NWSL that, that quite a few, if you look at the jump of coaches um, through the years, even in different clubs, different environments, that their resume has mostly been at the youth level um, prior to that NWSL team hiring them. And typically that involves some kind of a connection um, in that case. And, and we've seen that on a, I can think of a handful off the top of my head that, that it's happened or is even, you know, currently the case, as you've mentioned, um, yeah. which I think is, is, you know, obviously a conversation in itself. And you touched on some of the points there. Um, I, and I do want to talk about that, that wider aspect that you mentioned, because, um, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show that, you know, you've been involved and currently are involved in a lot of different levels. And I, I think about, you know, you mentioned some conversations that, that we have at the convention every year as a, as a group individually. And I, I do remember, you know, that every so often, I think maybe 10 years of going to the convention, sometimes I'll get frustrated in a session because I'll think, now, wait a minute, I feel like two, three years ago, we had this exact conversation. And you probably, maybe you've had a, an experience mm -hmm. like that at times. And, and then you sit there and wonder kind of, okay, well, yes, it's an ongoing conversation, but has something changed since then or, or within it? Um, and I wonder, you know, from the perspective of, of being involved in United Soccer Coaches, which that umbrella kind of covers everybody in some way, uh, formally, yeah. informally, um, has it has it changed in approach, at least from, you know, the areas that you can speak to? Have recent events changed the approach in any way? And, and are there things that maybe you're now working on you being maybe a, a group, a collective group that, that you weren't before. And I should say real quickly before I said post September 30th before, and that is when everything quite, quite a bit of the, the power structure seemed to change certainly, but we could ahead. Say, yeah. yeah, we yeah. could say post August 11th, which is when the Washington post came out with the story with Kaya McCullough Kaya. and, and yeah. some others um, who were at the time uh, unanimous, uh, anonymous, excuse me, um, yeah. You know, even post July 2nd, as we learned later with Fareed Benstiti being fired, if we're being honest, not really resigning, but the semantics of it. 
Um, yeah. So, so we, could, we could keep going farther and farther back, obviously. But um, so yeah. I just want to say that. But, you know, are you looking at things differently within United Soccer Coaches of how this sort of wider umbrella can can operate and what needs to change in that sense and what you might work on going forward? Yeah, I think collectively what we found is that um, the, you know, the senior leaders within the women's group, for instance, we've had conversations about this and, um, you know, we have lots of women who are, are heavily involved with U.S. soccer, with coach education. We have women who have coached within the league. Um, we have women who've coached within the previous leagues. Uh, and really, you know, what it's come down to is that we 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 can't take our foot off the gas um, as far as trying to educate owners and front office staff, club leaders, presidents, vice presidents, GMs, et cetera, hiring decision makers um, about the pool of qualified candidates that are available and and really stressing the benefit of um, hiring women coaches, but again, not just women coaches, hiring qualified women coaches. And the reality are that that, that is not a short list. Um, and it may be, you know, we talk about the college game. You don't see a lot of college coaches switching to the pro game. And there's many reasons for that. I mean, the instability of the pro game historically has obviously been a big one. Um, the salaries that are available at, and benefits that are available at, you know, power five schools dwarf, uh, you know, the league is, yeah, they, (laughs) the league is nothing. It's a fraction of what's being offered at then at power five schools. So it's, um, but also like, or then that, that has to go back to the clubs. It has to go back to the ownership. Like if you really want the most qualified coaches, then you need to be willing to pay for that. Um, and if you want to have a pro team, you need to have the kind of resources to get the best coaching staff that's currently available. And, um, and yeah, so, so for us as a group and within United soccer coaches, it's really about, um, you know, how can we educate decision makers on who these incredible coaches are? and really get them into the conversation and get them to be, you know, part of the dialogue. And, um, you know, I think just within this season, the number of, of women head coaches went from one to, you know, back up to what are we at now? We've got Casey, Laura, Becky was with Orlando for a while, right? Freya, um, you know, so that it can change rapidly. It's not, it's not difficult. Um, to find these women. It's just a matter of educating individuals who may not necessarily be well-versed in the soccer space. I think Julie Ehrman is a perfect example of somebody who um, soccer is not her space. You know, she is, her business prowess is really what dictates the decisions that she makes. So having the ability to get, um, you know, Amanda and Mia and Julie and these individuals around her that can help influence sort of the decision-making based on individuals who do have that soccer background is really helpful. Um, but I think that, you know, other clubs are making decisions based on things that they've seen in the men's game or, you know, again, pulling up their youth coaches, they're making decisions out of convenience 
not necessarily decisions based on who is the best person for the job. So it's a matter for me of, of educating them and getting these women, getting these qualified coaches into the dialogue and, uh, and really pushing clubs to make hiring decisions based on not the convenient choice, but the best choice. Um, and then on the flip side of that, something that's also really important for us is that, um, you often have, and this is really important when you start talking about abuse and various, um, incidents that could come up. Something that we've found happening more and more recently, and especially in the college game, uh, and it's happening with men and women coaches is, you know, athlete complaints to athletic directors, um, university presidents, et cetera, et cetera, on abuse potentially. And um, what we've really stepped, tried to step our game up on is how to educate coaches to mitigate the risk of, um, and this is a fine line. So people need to understand that I'm not saying we don't believe survivors because I 100% believe survivors. Um, but we also have to recognize that there are times when players may not be getting the kind of playing time that they want, or they may just, you know, fall out of favor with a coach and their parents, or they may make complaints to, like I said, to university leadership, athletic departments, leadership, and how do coaches navigate that? And that's why I say, I kind of have to toe both sides of this, right? Because I care about player rights and I believe survivors, but I also, um, I also want to empower coaches to make sure that they are protecting themselves as well from any sort of complaint. And to be honest with you, I think that the measures that we try to push, um, to protect coaches actually protects both. I think it prote protects athletes as much as it protects coaches. So things like, you know, recording conversations, um, and discussing that with athletes that you, you're going to record a conversation. Nobody comes into your office. You have a conversation with them that is not recorded or doesn't have another individual in the room. Um, those are, that's like operational risk management, right? That I think, um, I think it protects both coaches and athletes, um, you know, and working with various uh, vendors and suppliers who specialize in documenting everything. So any conversation that you have with an athlete, um, it's documented. And so, um, again, I think that's something that by, by really working with the coaches to help them mitigate risk, we're also protecting the athletes as much as we're protecting the coaches. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that those are best practices, right? Like those are things that I would want to do in a corporate environment anyway. If I'm, if I'm meeting with one of my employees, I'm not necessarily recording it, but I'm documenting every conversation that I have just if for no other reason than a performance management standpoint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's been interesting, right. To, to sit on that fence because, um, players and coaches aren't always going to see eye to eye. They're just not, um, that's the reality of it. Right. Um, you know, you're going to have times when you like really hate your coach. There were times when I hated my coaches. Um, and there were times when I loved my coaches. So it's, you know, it's, it's just what, sort of one of those things, right. Where transitioning from being a player and then into coaching and then helping advocate for coaches, we don't, we don't always, um, wind up in the same place on a certain issue. 
But I will say that something that we really strive for within the women's group is finding the common ground that, that empowers athletes and coaches. It protects athletes and coaches, and it's what's best for the game as a whole. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, yeah, admittedly, I, I don't always, um, you know, I'll have players even now, former teammates will call me and ask me for advice on something. And, and oftentimes I won't agree with them because at this point, like I see things more as a coach than I do as a player. So, um, so if, you know, they want to call me complaining about a coach, I usually am giving the, the benefit of the doubt to a coach, but also, you know, relating and empathizing with where they're coming from as a player, but giving that like sort of other perspective on it. Well, have you thought about why this is the case? Like, have you thought about why a coach might think this or perceive this or whatever? And then, and it, it, like I said, it winds up actually turning into a positive conversation because then we're enlightening one another on where, where that common ground is and where you can find the understanding. And I think that that's really important. I think that that's something that the league, you know, that we've sort of missed, you know, you don't see a lot of, of, um, player coaches, I think, you know, you know, Tony DeChico, he's, that's a player's coach. You know, he, he had a fantastic relationship with his players. He was hard on his players, but I don't, I've never met someone who wasn't positively influenced by him, no matter what happened. Um, I would say Lisa Cole is his protege is very similar. You know, she's, she is hard on athletes, but she will fight for what is best for her athletes, no matter what. Um, you know, so, and I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think we see that as much, um, in the pro league. I think a lot of coaches would like to think that they're player coaches, but I think really being able to find that common ground is where we struggle a little bit. I think, you know, so I've been really fortunate, Jeff, I'll just say, I've been really fortunate to be on both sides. Sometimes it's hard, but it's, mm-hmm. it's rewarding for sure. What does that look like? Um, that being, um, th- these, these resources, maybe one, but, but what does the landscape look like at that youth level, which I, I realize that that question in some ways is like, well, which part of the youth level and in which location and which league? And, and you know, I this think, is a, I think, I think you can still talk about that holistically though. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we, um, I think what's important to note is we talk about the league and we talk about the power dynamic within the league. Um, the power dynamic in youth soccer is, is much the same. Um, you know, you're dealing with minors there, there are abusive coaches, um, across the youth soccer landscape. doesn't matter the level, doesn't matter the geographic location. Um, they're out there, you know, abusers are everywhere. And I think the other thing that's really important too, is the point to make is that there are all different kinds of abuse. But abuse is abuse, whether it's emotional, psychological, sexual, physical abuse is abuse. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, no one type of abuse is any worse than any other. Abuse is abuse. Um, and I think at the youth landscape, at, at the, the youth level, the thing that we really struggle with is educating these kids on what that looks like. Uh, I think that a lot of children will come up thinking that, you know, being yelled at by a coach or, um, you know, 
that that's acceptable. Like they just, you know, really care about you. The more they yell at you, they care about you. And I'll use an example. And this isn't, this isn't from soccer. This is actually from, I have two, three little brothers and two of them play peewee football. And several years ago, um, I went to a peewee football game. My little brother was like eight and, um, there was a parent dad coach. Cause you know, it's, that's what kids dads do is they coach peewee football. And, um, and I will never forget this guy screaming at this group of eight-year-olds and he took a water bottle and he threw it on the ground. He took a clipboard and he threw it on the ground. And in my mind, I was like, if you ever talk to my eight-year-old like that, I would come up and smack the shit out of you. Like that is unacceptable. And when I had a conversation about it later with my family, I was like, what is that about? And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's, you got to toughen them up. Like that's, they have to learn now because that's what it's going to be like when, when they're older. No, no, you have to break that cycle. That is not, um, that is not productive. Like that, that, you know, I wouldn't treat my kid like that. Nobody else is going to treat my kid like that, you know? And I think educating kids that that sort of behavior is not okay. And it's not normal and it shouldn't be rewarded. You know, it shouldn't be accepted. And we see that in youth soccer. I've been to plenty of, of fields and tournaments where, you know, I've seen that kind of behavior. I've seen the screaming, I've seen the, the yelling and the cursing at kids. And like, what are you doing? You're not, you're not toughening them up. You're just being completely inappropriate and educating kids on you, you and their parents that you may think this coach may be leading you to, to a good place from a a win loss record standpoint, or you may feel like your athlete is growing and developing as an athlete underneath this coach, but that's not an excuse for tolerating that kind of behavior. Um, and so one educating youth players about it, what it looks like, what it feels like and why it isn't okay. And then also giving them a mechanism for, reporting that kind of behavior when it happens. So that's something that we've been working on extensively within the GA. We're getting ready to announce a, a partnership that we have with a, with a reporting company. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, everything sort of goes to safe sport. I have my own opinions on safe sport based on just my experience in general as a, as an athlete growing up in the United States. And then also obviously working with Afghanistan and and while safe sport is not, Afghanistan didn't have anything to do with safe sport, the gaps uh, and the, the approach to dealing with abuse, or I saw similarities um, in dealing with Afghanistan versus, and versus things I've dealt with with safe sport. And I think safe sport itself has a very, very long way to go. I think USA Gymnastics proves that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it happens everywhere. And I, and I would just encourage, you know, individuals who are youth coaches and, or have kids who are getting into youth sports, like do not tolerate that kind of behavior because the reality is that's not what your kids should be accepting as they get older. That's not as a pro athlete. If you talk to me like that, I would just, I, I wouldn't respond well, Mm -hmm. um, to that kind of behavior. So, you know, if, if you, if you can't talk to me like that as a pro, then, don't talk to me like that as an eight or nine year old kid. Um, and, and actually, and I'll add to that, Jeff, you know, it's, I, 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 um, have been pretty outspoken about one former, uh, head coach of the Houston dash (laughs) and how abusive she was. And people have, have come at me about, you know, well, there's just tough coaching. 
like, there's just tough coaching. Like she's not abusive. She's just a tough coach. And, and I just want to be like, do you realize you're talking to a United States Marine officer? Like we perfected the concept of tough coaching. Um, I know what tough coaching looks like. I know what, what driving people to meet a very specific standard in a life or death situation looks like. And soccer is not a life or death situation, number one. And number two, I would never, never tolerate somebody speaking to me like that in a stressful environment. And the reality is there may be things in training that Marine Corps, you know, that's, that is, that's tough coaching, but there's a very distinct line that goes from tough coaching into verbal, emotional, psychological abuse. And when it's clear that an athlete is not responding positively or an athlete is, is actually conversely being, is facing a serious detriment because of that coaching style. If you're a decent coach and you're a decent human, you address how you deal, communicate, empower, encourage that athlete. You don't just continue to berate them. And so, you know, it's frustrating to me when people are like, oh, well, tough coaching. It's, it's like acceptable. You just, you know, athletes these days are soft. What? Athletes these days aren't soft. It's just like we talked about. It's accountability. Athletes these days are not going to be treated poorly and they shouldn't be treated poorly. They're humans. First and foremost, they're humans. And, and for me, coaching is about getting the best out of your athletes. It's about getting the best out of these people. And if what you're doing isn't going to get the best out of them, then stop doing that. It's that simple. Stop doing it. So yeah, yeah. a human issue, I think is, is one of the, the phrases human we've, issue. Heard, we've heard yeah. and, and is, is very true, not just a, a soccer or even a business issue, but yeah, I mean, I think at, at a certain point, things you're doing, uh, things that we've, we've said that, that really brought us to this point that have been reported recently, that those are, those are human problems above, above anything, you know, first and foremost. Um, that, and I think the, the task of, that you mentioned of um, how to correct this, the, the idea, because I'm, I'm thinking back even to, you know, and, and you might be as well. I mean, not that I had anything I would call extreme, at least comparatively and comparing, as you said before, is, is not a worthwhile endeavor, but just thinking back to playing youth ball, college ball and, yeah, I mean, you almost, what do you do if you have a coach who in, in some way is berating or, or acts like that or whatever, you know, whatever that action might be, what do you do? And you, you are kind of seemingly conditioned to, to say, all right, you know, to some degree anyway, well, this is kind of what I should expect maybe, or this is what people say I should expect. And I think that's, that's, that feels like the daunting task beyond these 10 to, you know, 12, soon to be 12 pro teams is, the thousands of, of youth clubs and teams, and then the, you know, the millions really of youth players out there um, that that's the sort of, when we say systemic change, I guess, you know, even myself been writing that for the NWSL recently um, systemic is, is quite, you know, to exponentially larger, I guess, than the, than the pro league, um, which is, is a daunting task, I guess, but um, you know, and you mentioned too earlier, I think people, you know, you mentioned the, you know, that line you, twice deployed in Iraq. Is that correct? 
right? Yeah. For you. Yeah. So, yeah. So anybody listening, yeah. you know, for, for context, certainly, I think not that, not that it's needed, but um, well, I wanted to ask you too, because, and you did mention Afghanistan. I think anybody who's listening as well, um, Soccer America this past week had an article with you, an interview with you, which mm-hmm. I think you said was the Cliff Notes version, but um, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, everything that um, very unfortunate and, and scary and, and many different uh, words for that that's happened in Afghanistan recently. Um, and, and you were involved quite heavily and, and directly. You were involved with the, the women's national team uh, for several years in some capacity, but but recently in this, this again, human level, I guess, of, of preserving their safety um, and, and getting yeah. them out of there with, with everything happening um, with the Taliban. And you know, if you, I guess the in-depth version or the, the slightly more in-depth version, maybe it is on Soccer America there, but, um, you know, this was, what, what was that experience like? Um, I, I can't imagine an enjoyable one, but, but you know, the, getting them out of there, um, would you say successfully in the end? Is that a, a word you use or is that? I, I will say that we by far exceeded our expectations. Um, and, and getting them to safety. What I think is, is interesting about Afghanistan and really important for people to know about that effort is, um, you know, we dealt with the sexual abuse allegations back in, you know, the, towards the end of 2018, we spent all of 2018 working on that case, um, and ensuring our, we got survivors to safety. And so this is not the first time we've gotten women out of Afghanistan, uh, somewhat, um, clandestinely, I'll say. Um, but the, you know, we, something that Kelly, Lindsay and I, so Kelly was the head coach and I was her assistant, Kalita Popal is the program director, something that we impressed upon our players and uh, their families from the very beginning, because mind you, we had several minors who were playing for us at the time, um, was, that we would take care of their daughters. Um, and no matter what we would protect their daughters and their, every decision we made would be based upon what was in the best interest of them as humans and as athletes. It was much bigger than what was happening on the field. Obviously we wanted to put together a team that could compete at the international level. I think we did a pretty good job doing that. Um, but it was still much bigger than football, right? It was about giving these women coming from a society that, you know, many of them had to hide the fact that they were footballers um, you know, giving them the opportunity to be able to compete, to be able to use sport as a platform to get an education, to travel, um, you know, to, to be empowered um, as women that, you know, we stressed, you know, day in and day out, every interaction that we had, every decision that we made, um, you know, was, was really about the players. It was about what would be best for the players. And, you know, we got through the sexual assault um, sexual harassment cases and the, you know, Kelly and I lost our jobs over all of that because, you know, we sided with the players and, and many of the, the women who were, you know, living outside of Afghanistan, who were part of the team, who were part of the Afghan diaspora, were either refugees or their parents were refugees, basically our entire starting lineup. Um, they also stood with their teammates and some of these teammates, they had never even met before. Some of these women were part of the program before they came on board. Um, and they sacrificed their careers as well, um, to support these women, these survivors of sexual assault. And, and what, 
the reason I bring that up and I give that context is because what, what we were able to do in August, as far as getting those women athletes who were in Kabul out of the country, we could have never done it if they didn't have the trust in us that was built over the last five years. You know, we'd been with them since 2016. When, when I asked them to, to move to the airport, when I asked them to move from like the Panjir petrol station to Abbey gate, they were, you know, dealing with Taliban. There were rounds snapping overhead. There were jamming bubbles where they couldn't get through with their cell phone. And if I asked them to jump, they asked how high, right? If I was like, you have to go and you have to go now. Or if I was like, you need to write this on a sign and this is what your code word's going to be. And this is who you're looking for. They listened. Um, we would have never been able to pull that off if we didn't have that kind of trust. And because we had that trust, you know, we were able to as efficiently as possible, get that group of women, get their families, get officials, get their families to the airport. We were able obviously to, um, through my military network and through a few of our lawyers and their networks through Craig Foster, through FIFPRO, you know, we're able to connect, get connected with individuals who are inside the airport um, to meet our athletes and get through. Um, but none of that would have happened if we didn't have that trust. And so that's why I get, I, I have a zero tolerance policy for abusive coaches. I don't have time for it. And it's why I stand so strongly against Nadine Onger's statement a few, you know, like two weeks ago, last week, I have no tolerance for anyone who, um, discredits, survivors who, um, who doesn't go out of their way to make sure that they are in an environment where players feel safe to play, to grow, um, to, 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 yeah, to be people, to be who they are. Um, I have no tolerance. I have no tolerance. I have no time for it. I will, um, I will, I will be very outspoken about it. Um, I'm just not okay with it. I'm not okay with it. I would rather, I, I tweeted this out a couple of weeks ago. It's actually right after Nadine's statement that, you know, I would rather be on Gianni Infantino's shit list and never get to coach internationally again, because I stood up for my players and I stood up for survivors and I believe them and I did the right thing because then I can sleep at night. I would, I would genuinely, um, you know, that, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Um, because you know, I've just been given too much in my life. I've been too fortunate. I've had an amazing support structure in my entire life. And, and I have a moral obligation to, um, to empower others and stand for others and, and ensure that everyone gets the opportunities as many people as I can get the opportunities that, you know, I was given. And so, um, yeah, I'm very adamant and unapologetic about it. Where do you think, uh, and by the way, that, that longer version, or at least longer than this even version of, of that story I mentioned on Soccer America from last week, um, you can read some of the, the play-by-play, which, which Haley, you just mentioned some of it there of coordinating with old military contacts to, to coordinate that. But um, I'm wondering maybe to wrap up, you know, you're involved in a lot. I read, you know, some of your different positions at the beginning. You're, you're a lawyer, you're involved in soccer in several different ways. Um, you mentioned throughout this pod kind of where your passion is. And even just now, what do you, where do you kind of see yourself being able to be most effective in 
affecting that change, do you think? I think, you know, you, that changes over time, right? I think, you know, I'm kind of one of those types of people that I want to, wherever the fire is, I want to go to it. Um, And that's a moving target, right? I think right now we've got a lot of things going on with players. Um, I've got a lot of things going on with coaches right now. I'm working with quite a few who've, you know, they've come under some like employment disputes and, um, and for me, I just, I want to go where I can make an impact. Um, you know, whether it's helping coaches who are 1099s get health insurance, that's a really big concern of mine right now. I want to make sure that we work with United soccer coaches. And, and if it's the last thing I do for United soccer coaches, that's something I really want to push. Um, you know, and, you know, serving on the, the board of the girls Academy and giving, young girls, the, having the opportunity to empower them and help make decisions that, uh, will help them and support them. Uh, you know, I like, yeah, I just, I want to go wherever I'm needed and wherever I can make an impact. And, um, you know, I'm not very discriminatory when it comes to that sort of stuff. So, uh, if anything, I, I'm have to, I think, get better at saying no sometimes, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I just, it's an evolving game. It's an evolving landscape and there are problems everywhere. There are issues everywhere that could use some improvement and some work. And, uh, and I, like you had mentioned earlier, I've been very fortunate, you know, I've coached in the college game. I've coached in the youth game. I've coached internationally. Um, so I've sort of seen it at all levels and, and I, you know, I played professionally so I can bring, you know, a perspective to the table that, you know, we, we might sometimes be lacking, but I also recognize that, you know, like I am one very fortunate, very privileged white woman, um, that's coming to the table. And for me, I think that something that I really would like to work on is not necessarily being at that table, but opening the door or holding the door open for other women to be at that table, you know, women of color, uh, women of our LGBTQ plus community, Um, you know, I think that that I feel again, a moral obligation to, you know, I I don't want to ever be a gatekeeper. Like if anything, I, um, I want to hold that door open and, and jump and shout and scream for others to get into positions that they've not been able to get into. Um, because I just, I, like I said, I've been really fortunate I don't think I've ever been without opportunity. And so I think it's important for women like me and others to make sure that we are holding the door open for those women who have perhaps not been given that opportunity. Because I think having additional perspectives and having as diverse a collective of opinions you can is how you make the world a better place. So, yeah. Well, Haley, I appreciate, um, you know, I I realize we're probably only scratching the surface in some ways on on such a... uh, broad and and very deep and and wide-ranging topic um but i think certainly insightful for those those listening and, and hopefully they take away some ways uh, i think even just little things that that you mentioned of um, some best practices of recording conversations as an example of some small things that maybe people take away yeah never in secret by the way don't ever record right. yes yes a, a consensual recording consensual uh, be, recording um, yes. but but yeah you know I, I think hopefully they take away some more than that but but just as a tangible example and um, anybody listening if you want to follow along with with what Haley has been working on is working on um, I think Twitter probably uh, is is one way at 
H underscore C underscore Carter. And is that, that's probably the best way, would you say? Hey, I think for- so. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not very active on the Insta. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook cause I'm old, but uh, yeah, Twitter's, <laughs> Twitter is the most instantaneous um, way to get my take on things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Retweets are not endorsements, and I am not your lawyer. <laughs> yes, the opinions, all opinions are my own. Is the oh, my own. Yes, um, exactly. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll catch up again soon, as hopefully there's positive developments. But um, I'll, I'll link some yeah. things here that we talked about. Uh, if you're listening on the site on equalizersoccer.com, I'll put some links in. And if you're listening on a pod platform, go ahead and find them on the website there. Um, Haley, I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, thank you again, Jeff. I appreciate it. Hopefully I get to see you at the convention in January. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer and now with Blue Wire Podcasts. If you missed any of our great interviews from the past or you don't want to miss anything going forward, and I promise you that you don't, please subscribe on any platform you're listening. Please go ahead and rate and review our podcast. It really does help with visibility. That's that for this episode. We'll be back soon with another great guest from the world of women's soccer.